0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern, or catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast, go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we have a thought-provoking show for you this week. For the first time, we have Dr. Ray Guarendi. He's a Catholic psychologist and father of 10, most notably known for his series, The Doctor, is in on EWTN radio. We're happy to have him on with us today with his good humor and sparkling conversation but he'll be telling us about his new book called simple steps to a stronger marriage first we have invited our good friend father ben Keeley from england of Nazarene.org to discuss a situation occurring in armenia that really isn't getting a lot of attention in the media and we'd like to talk about that with him and so all of you can hear all of us can hear about our, our christian brothers and sisters who are suffering terribly in armenia Welcome to the show, Father Ben.
1: Thank you, Gracie. Always wonderful to be with you. Thank you for having me.
0: So, Father, tell us what's going on in Armenia. I have to admit, it's I, I saw some some headlines in the news, but I haven't deepened my understanding. So can you do that for us, please?
1: Well, you're not unusual. I was speaking with a seasoned Catholic journalist the other day who basically knew nothing about it. It's, it's a tragic situation. Basically, Armenia, there's a section of Armenia in Azerbaijan, the neighboring country. This is an area of the world perhaps many listeners don't know about, but you've got Armenia, a Christian country, the oldest Christian country in the world since the fourth century, uh, surrounded by Turkey on one side, Azerbaijan, Iran, Russia above, this Christian nation, this little nation that's been has suffered for so long. Remember, just over 100 years ago, there was the first recorded genocide in the world when the Ottoman Turks uh, murdered um, at least a million, if not more, uh, Armenians and Assyrian Christians. And now in this little section of what was once Armenia, a place called Nabor Nagorno-Karabakh, or as the Armenians call it, Artsakh, the Azerbaijanis, a Muslim nation, are blockading the only corridor, the only road from Armenia into this section, which is made up of Armenian nationals, uh, Armenian majority, they're blockading this area called the Lachin Corridor. In other words, and this has been happening since uh, December, we're not hearing much in the news about it, but they're starving them. They are literally starving these 120,000 men, women and children to death. But just today, uh, a senior figure um, who's worked with the European Court, I believe, has said a a potential genocide is on the horizon. They're denying them food, they're denying them medicines, they're denying them water because it's basically an ethnic cleansing. They want the Armenians out, and the Azerbaijanis have said they will then put 150,000 Azerbaijanis in. And meanwhile, the world, as you said, and as I say, you're not alone, Gracie. uh, The world seems not to be taking any notice. There are all kinds of reasons for that, but it's something that Christians, at least, should really have some concern about.
0: Is Is this a conflict between Christians, Christianity and Islam?
1: Well, yes, in a sense, but it's it's a national conflict. The fact is the Armenians are Christians and the Azerbaijanis are Muslim, but it's also it's territorial. This goes back, I mean, centuries upon centuries. Armenia, as I said, was the, is the oldest Christian country in the world. And uh, that's a, if you're ever going to play Trivial Pursuit and what's the oldest Christian country in the world? Armenia. You get it right. Uh, <laughs> And so this this section was always Armenian. One of the things people say about when others are claiming their territory is always go to the graveyards. And you see, of course, the graveyards are full of Armenians. So they've been fighting for centuries. The Ottoman Turks controlled it. What happened then under Stalin, as we know, Stalin tried to, as it were, heal a lot of these, well, not really heal, but suppress these divisions between nations. But when the Soviet Union collapsed, all this fighting began again. There was a full scale war in the 90s and then another war in 2020 the point is it's its land and culture and the azerbaijanis now are claiming it's their land and they're also though destroying the heritage of armenians i mean they're literally they're knocking crosses down, burning down churches. I saw exactly the same thing, funnily enough, when I was in Iraq, that ISIS did the same thing. It dug up, you might remember, Christian grave to try and prove, as it were, oh, Christians were never here. And the Azerbaijanis are doing exactly the same thing. However, this little group of Christians are, are being starved, as I said, they're cutting everything off, including a uh, including all food and medicine, and then they, will, they want them to, to give up and then leave. And then the Azerbaijanis will just push their own people into the place. The problem is, Gracie, that, that Azerbaijan is, in theory, a friend of the United States and, and the West. It's uh, meant to be a sort of an ally against Iran. The problem is the U.S. and Europe is trading in arms with the Azerbaijanis. The Israelis are giving arms to the Azerbaijanis. This little country, Armenia, this little con- Christian country is in the middle of all this world geopolitics. But we always try and focus, I know when I'm on your show, we always try and focus on the people and especially the Christians. Why do we care about the Christians? Well, first of course, us because we're Christians. We care about our brothers and sisters. But then this little nation of Armenia in the middle, as I said at the beginning, of all these other countries, we need a, a little Christian nation like that to be a force for good in the area. So I just once more alert your listeners to, to prayer and, and advocacy. You're probably about to ask me, well, what could we do? This is something that, this is really a, a thing that it, People need to speak to their congressmen, women and, and representatives about. I know work is going on at the moment in the Congress about trying to address this issue, but we're weeks away from people starving to death. Actually, weeks away. People are dropping down already. They're, they're not having surgeries, etc. The old and obviously the very young are extremely vulnerable. But imagine imagine if you and where you are down in Florida, if imagine if it was cut off and there was no food, no medicine, nothing coming to you and there was no way of it and the world was taking no notice i mean it wouldn't happen of course but it's it's terribly shocking
0: it is it's terribly shocking and
1: about, the analogy i would use is is the us and canada if you imagine up up at the border between the us and canada where i used to where my charity's based in vermont if you look up at the top of america you've got vermont imagine there was just a small section Then as you went into Canada, which was like a state, the size of a small state, which are basically full of Americans, but it's in Canada. This is basically what it is. So there's a section of Azerbaijan, which is full of Armenians, and it always was. So what's happened, again, if you look at the analogy between the U.S. and and Canada, imagine if this little section of, of U.S. people in this section of Canada then had... The, the Canadians were attempting then to push them all out and then blockaded the only bridge or the only road from the US into into Canada to stop them receiving anything that's the nearest analogy so yes the same is happening in this this is what's happening in this area this small section um it's about a people who say this is their land and they've been there, there there's no doubt that they've been there since since the early days because we've there are monasteries there as I say graveyards the culture Armenian culture was very much part of this area 1700 years ago so there's no doubt yes the time history has moved on however now it's about the people who say this is our land and another people who are saying no it's our land and we're going to literally force you out we're going to starve you into submission and then when you give up we're going to push you out and where and do they
0: where do they food. suppose these people ought to go just move over into yeah
1: the all go back into Armenia as refugees, 120,000 people uh, into this little tiny country of Armenia. So it's a humanitarian crisis, uh, but it's something that the the world is not seeming to take much notice of because, as I said, of all the sort of geopolitics. Um, the Church. I, I I tweeted the other day. Maybe some people picked it up. I said, why is the Church so silent? This this also is another issue that's very depressing. That I believe we've seen. I was trying to check. I've seen about two statements from the Pope in the. The last two years, calling people's attention to it, which is good, but to, I think Armenia, when people to Armenia, to
0: Armenia specifically,
1: to, to, to this specific, to this specific pro- conflict yes. in Nagorno Karabakh and Artsakh. He did send Cardinal Parolin there last month, I believe, to try and do some some peacekeeping, some negotiations. We haven't heard any results of that, but I think this is one of those things that, for example, if at World Youth Day, it would have been an incredible thing if he proclaimed, please, please pray for these our brethren who are who are being starved to death, or at least highlighting it because no one knows about it this is the first we're talking about it
0: father before i hit record and we started our interview i you and i were talking and we were we were remarking on the fact that sometimes it feels like the church our catholic church that that who is our mother is sometimes very fixated on what you were calling first world problems, and we could talk about what those are. But in a sense, it, it is frustrating sometimes when you see the church itself, the the, the administered church, the 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 Vatican, the the high you know the hierarchy, the top of the hierarchy, concerned very much with things that uh, that seem very far away from things that are so urgent, like like Christians in China and in every communist country being. Um, being oppressed in, in, in horrible ways, this is this that's happening in Armenia, all the terrible ways that our, our Christian brothers and sisters are oppressed in the Middle East. I mean, I, we could go on and on, um, Nigeria, you know, all of all these areas in Africa, man rising, you know, raising his hand against his Christian brother and, and slaughtering him. Where is the it's church's it. attention span for, for these life and death things?
1: Well, I think you're 100% right, Gracie, we were talking about, it. we don't want to be controversial, but I I have to express what um, people have said to me, I've said to you before, and, and I've been told by Christians when I've been in the Middle East that they feel deep down that the church in the West doesn't care about them. And I, a lot of people, especially your listeners, always say, well, we care, I know, that's wonderful, thanks be to God. But when you look at something, for example, like the Synod, the Synod that's on the horizon, I see no mention of this crisis, this grave. Pope Francis himself has said that the persecution of Christians now is worse than it's ever been in history since the very beginning. And yet, what are we focusing on in the Synod? We're focusing on what I would call first world issues, things to do with human sexuality, and all sorts of, they they may well be important, but when our brethren are being slaughtered, when, when Christians are being oppressed, as you said, in China and all these other places, This should be an issue, an issue of grave concern, and it seems to be off the map. To me, that's a problem. Uh, I don't want to be too controversial, but to me, that's a problem.
0: Well, and even um, maybe I'm moving into controversy, but um, even the fact that when we talk about things like human sexuality at the Synod, what what it feels like is is that there's, this, uh, that there's this drumbeat of, oh, you know, the Catholic Church should join the modern world on, on sexual issues. When in fact, at, we in the first world, we're, you and I live in the first world, our listeners, most of them do too, um, what we're experiencing is on these on these issues of, of sexual morality especially, is that we feel that we need more support from the Church to help us stick to our guns, like to stick to the, 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 the truths of human anthropology.
1: We're in a most... Curious time, Gracie. <laughs> Perhaps that's one way of putting it. We're in a time of intense confusion. And I think you're right. I think that the witness, for example, I had a wonderful experience literally just a few weeks ago. I was in Sweden. We put a shrine in. You know, our, our, my charity, Nazarene.org, has been putting shrines to pray for persecuted Christians throughout the world. And we put a shrine in, in Stockholm, Sweden, uh, because there are many, many Christians from especially from the Middle East, Iraqis and, and Syrians and beautiful mass, a Syriac Catholic mass. And the cardinal from Sweden, Cardinal Arborelius, who's a Dominican, very gentle. Very quiet man preached a beautiful homily, uh, basically thanking the, the 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 diaspora, these these Iraqis and Syrian Christians who've who've brought the faith to a very secular country, Sweden, extremely secular. And he's saying he was saying to them, you know, keep the faith, encouraging them, especially the young people. But the witness, he was thanking them for the witness of family and tradition, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yes, we it, it can be very frustrating and and confusing for. Ordinary Catholics to wonder why why the Church seems to be following the spirit of fashion. We, we remember paraphrasing our friend Chesterton about a church that uh, to church is meant to swim upstream, not not down. A dead thing. Remember he said a dead yeah. thing goes, goes down. Goes with the alarm. goes
0: with the stream,
1: right? That the something alive flows up the stream. And I think of another a quote from a famous Anglican from I think a century or so ago, a man called Dean Ng. He said the the Church that marries the spirit of this age will be a widow in the next age which oh, i think is very, very powerful again we're, we're not we're not we're followers of fashion we're already out of date well and we've we're seen
0: we've seen fashion. the the different uh, christian sects uh, that have married the spirit of the age that are now widowed uh, exactly. because their their exactly. churches are empty i was in ireland we must i was in ireland recently and um, the, I was shocked by, well, I'm always shocked when I go to uh, places like England and Ireland that that all these churches and abbeys and monasteries, and they, they were built by Catholics for Catholics, taken over by the Protestants. And now you go back, and um, in Dublin, for instance, we visited these beautiful churches that were Catholic, that were taken over by the the, the Church of Ireland, which is Protestant. Um and they're empty, they have no 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 worshippers. They are museums,
1: they're widowed. <laughs> this, is the, this is the death of, uh, of European culture, but we can flip, we can flip, because we always have to try and be hopeful. I think C.S. Lewis, also quoting someone who never became a Catholic, but should have done, but C.S. Lewis said, uh, before the new evangelization, I'm paraphrasing him, but effectively, before Christianity can be preached again, he said we'd have to become pagans and we can say well we're we're there now another uh, we're working hard on
0: that (laughs) well the
1: the, certainly europe is is becoming pagan although as alice von hildebrand said once it's worse than pagan because we were christian and now we're not but the point is if if basically christianity disappears or semi-disappears it's back to benedict for benedict to About creative minorities we've got to be when people have really no knowledge of the gospel they don't even know what these what these buildings were for and this is the thing and certainly in parts of Europe now the average intelligent young person really has no, no connection with Christianity don't doesn't know what any of this stuff means well this is the point for the new evangelization which is not new it's the same evangelization it's once more proclaiming Christ His saving power this is what the Synod, again, I think the Synod should be focused almost solely on evangelization, new means and, and all those sort of things, thoroughly orthodox, but not just being a pale pale copy of what's outside. Do you, I always think when, I think, I think it was the American writer, Walker Percy, I've quoted him before, He he said at some point in time, he was probably writing in the 70s or the 80s, but he said at some point in time, young people will be so sick of, of the world that they're in, that they'll come to us. And we better have something to give them. We don't want to give them a cheap copy of what they've already rejected outside. We want to give them, as you said, a beautiful vision of family, a beautiful vision of male and female created by God, beautiful worship, beautiful churches. Mm-hmm. This is what we have to offer them, sacredness. sacredness, enchantment, sacredness, lifting their souls. Because the world that, that they're living in now is pretty corrupt and,
0: yeah. and and it's empty of meaning. There's no exactly. overarching meaning to to uh, a modern person, a secular modern person's life. There's no overarching meaning, and and, and to, to live without meaning is is to live in chaos and confusion and and eventually despair. Uh, it and seems we to claim
1: me- we claim just the gospel just a week or two ago. The gospel was about the pearl of great price and the treasure found in the field. We claim that we have found the pearl of great price, that we have found the tr- the treasure worth selling everything for, um, so often that we don't seem to appear that we, we have found the pearl of great price. We, we, we're meant to be saying to people in the world, this is it, we've got the treasure. Not in a triumphal way, but to say, we have something so incredible to give you that you've really been searching for. It's back to Augustine, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We, this is evangelization saying to people, we have what you're looking for, but let's not give them a horrible, cheap copy. Because for a start, whenever the church tries to copy the world, it always fails. It's always it's always not very good. It's like some of those yeah. cheesy programs the church used to make in the 1970s. People, the kids just laugh at them. It, it's, it's, not, it's not good quality. Mm-hmm.
0: Father, you said, um... Going back to what you said about being pagan, today's modern pagan uh, sensibility, I agree with I forget who you said.
1: C.S. Lewis. Uh,
0: that it's worse. Or no, so you said somebody said it was worse yeah. now than before. Yes, yes. C.S. Lewis? Alice von Hildebrand. Alice von Hildebrand. Um, and I, I think about that a lot, and I think that one of the reasons it's worse is because when a modern pagan is walking around, he thinks he knows what Christianity is, and he's already rejected it. Because he's he's been told it's been tried and found wanting. Um and he's been and he's been told uh lies about what Christianity means. That it's a patriarchy and a, that it's oppressive and that it's um and that it stands between man and and man's ultimate flourishing, right? As a like a, an oppressive power structure that's going to keep him from his real flourishing and his fulfillment. Um so so it's worse in that sense, because I imagine the pagans, uh the real the back the pagans who first heard the word of the gospel the who heard who heard the good news must have been blown away by hearing the truth for the first time the truth of their being their 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 sonship or daughtership of god um, the importance of things that they knew inside but that nobody had ever uh, expressed to them as 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 true and revealed, and and now we have this terrible barrier that of people well, are thinking two, we've are already two. heard it. We found out it was wrong. God is dead. Nietzsche, you know, Nietzsche said it uh, some while back, and it turns well, out they, he was but right. They haven't
1: heard it. That's the first thing. As I said, you'll find many, many, if not the majority of modern Europeans have ne- never heard the gospel proclaimed. Mm-hmm. Two interesting things. One, I again totally agree with you. It's not a mutual admiration society, but I totally <laughs> well, agree. Well, partly it. it is, but. Uh, partly, yeah, <laughs> but that's why he keeps having me on, Gracie. But um, I think back to we, we think back to that moment in the Acts of the Apostles when Paul goes to the Areopagus in in Greece, yeah, and Paul, the 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 evangelizer, the, mm-hmm. this this incredible man, and he and he speaks to them, he preaches to them in language they understand, and we remember that line in the in in the Act. It said, "Some laughed at him." Some said we will hear more of this, but also we hear the names of some of the converts. Some were converted right then, but we hear some of their names, Dionysius, the Areopagite, et cetera. So I think we're in that world. Something very interesting, which is also positive because we're trying to be positive, uh, at least uh, here in, in England and also in in parts of Europe. Some interesting things, interesting things are happening. Some people who've come... From, from, as it were, the extremes, even sort of extreme feminists, et cetera, et cetera, there are people who are moving towards, first and foremost, faith in Christianity. Uh, I bet it was a conference recently when several fem- women who had been on what we might call the extreme feminist side are moving, seeing what has happened to women, etc., and to uh, the role of women, are coming towards us, even privately saying that they're heading towards Christianity, and there are conversions to Catholicism, because obviously one has to end up with the complete truth if you're following the truth. So I think there's some, if you're willing to be open to the truth, if you listen with an open ear uh, and you follow the truth, you have to come at some point to Catholicism. You have to, otherwise you've put a barrier up against the truth. So once again the church must be aware of this and and be focusing on this and present
0: and and present it confidently
1: right i think there's there's
0: there's a strain of um shamefacedness right well we have these we have these dogmas and these ideas and but don't worry about that you know god loves you and we'll talk about the other stuff later no the other stuff is what sets you free Right? The, the dogma stuff.
1: is the drama. Dorothy L. Sayers, the great playwright. Oh, I love
0: that. <laughs> the
1: dogma is the drama. But also, we think back to the early church. We use two Greek words, the, the, the kerygma and then the, 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 the didache, the teaching. The, the, the apostles preached first. Jesus is Lord. He died for us. He, he died for our sins. He rose from the dead. They preached the word, the full word. Then the teaching comes. But you've got to preach the word. Yes, it's true. We can't just present all the teaching to people first without... That encounter. Um, so we we have to you, very good word confidence you used Gracie. I would also use a biblical word boldness. boldness. That's another feature of the of the uh, apostles, the disciples in those in those early days. They boldly proclaimed. You read in Acts, they bo- when they're told to shut up by the authorities, they go out and boldly proclaim. We need a bit of bold proclamation of the word. And then we will see a result. We may get persecuted. Well,
0: and I but feel, and I feel that the the, the the issues of sexual morality, which which are the ones where the church gets so much abuse, right here in the in the first world. We're not talking about now the the other issue of of Christian persecution, but um, in, in those issues, I can imagine I can imagine a young person, for instance, who matured in in an in, in an in an ambiance of sexual of, of intense sexual liberation being sickened inside at, at some level in their subconscious uh, by the things that they have endured and, and the way that they've allowed themselves to be mistreated and have mistreated others, and, and, and they feel that sickness. They turn to the church because the church can explain to them, this is where things went wrong. This is where the, your dignity was, wh- was hurt. This is where you hurt someone else's dignity because they feel the truth of, the, of, of what's happened to them. And and they, they under they the truth that they hear back from the church liberates them. It liberates them into a state of understanding and real human anthropology, where then, then they can take that's their the lives. That's it should be. Then they can take that, their lives the and and make something beautiful of their lives because now but they're standing not, on truth. It's not.
1: It's not the, uh, we're hearing it may be a distraction or it may not be 100% true, but this idea that carry on as you are kind of thing. We're, and we remember when Jesus encountered the woman caught, as the gospel says, in the very act of adultery, he doesn't say carry on sinning. Mm-hmm. He says, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. We have to, the, the other image that's been used a lot, which of course, St. Augustine uh, created, the image of the field hospital. But the point is, as you know, as a doctor, uh, you don't go to the field hospital to stay as you are, you go to be healed, you go to be patched up. You don't to be, go to hand
0: out aspirin. Wound. You don't hand out yeah, aspirin and a little cup of water. <laughs> you,
1: don't get, you don't go to be told, well, your wound is great. We're, we're very glad your wound is foul and festering. Let's <sighs> encourage that infection. No, you go to get treated. The treatment might be painful. I mean, you might need, uh, you might even need an amputation, but the field hospital is meant to send you out back healed, heal or maybe wounded, but healed and whole. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe even if you have something amputated. Uh, so this is what the, the image of the church as a field hospital is a very good idea, but to heal you, not to tell you to stay harmed and damaged.
0: Thank you, Father. <laughs> for, for being someone who consistently reminds us of one of the big things that, that, that God expects from us is to care for our brothers and sisters who are suffering far away from us and, and are being persecuted for their faith, as Christians have been since, since Jesus himself. So thank you, Father, for joining us all the way from England. And telling thank you us so about, much, Gracie. Tell us um, where we can learn about your charity, Nazarean.org.
1: You, you can go to the to the website. Again, I always spell it just to make sure that everyone gets the right one. It's Nazarean.org with an S-N-A-S-A-R-E-A-N.org, and then you can find all the details about ways of helping and praying. I always ask people to pray first and foremost, Gracie, and thank you as always for, for having me on.
0: Welcome to the show, Dr. Ray. Thank you, Gracie. Dr. Ray, you are a Catholic psychologist and the father of 10. You beat me by 100%. I only have, my husband and I only have five children, so I congratulate you. What yeah,
2: but a... kids probably don't have parole officers like mine do.
0: Oh, <laughs> not yet, but we <laughs> we can wait and see. We won't say, we won't say it won't happen. I always have, I have this little joke with my children. They always say, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And I say, so far? <laughs> i love it you wait and see something worse will happen so dr ray um besides being a busy father and psychologist you have a radio show like like me on EWTN radio called the doctor is in and uh that's a wonderful show that does a lot of good but that wasn't enough for you you wrote a book called simple steps to a stronger marriage why did you write this book and how did you feel that you were especially positioned to write that
2: the easiest part of doing any kind of counseling is knowing what to say, how to guide the person. The hardest part by far is convincing them to do it. Mm -hmm. And I decided there were some simple steps, very simple, simple things that people can do in a marriage, but I gotta get them past their resistance to doing even these simple things, whether it's laziness, whether it's hostility, whether it's that won't work, whether it's my spouse will take advantage of me, whatever it is, that's part of the book.
0: So you're saying that there's there's these uh, deep things that we're attached to, like preconceptions or things that seem very, very important to us that we can't let go of. And if we're not ready to sign- Sacrifice those things. We can't move forward into a good marriage. A
2: client will come into my office and they will be totally frustrated completely over this six-year-old kid. They're describing a whole litany of troubles from this kid and relating to it. I give them a couple of simple discipline ideas that they can implement and two, they come back a month later, two weeks later, whenever it is. About half of them will say, I'm living with a different kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he's, he's more at peace. He's nicer. You know, he told me he loved me three times yesterday. He hasn't told me he's loved me three times in the last month. And I say, well, how is this? And they said, well, it was just a couple of simple adjustments. That we made, mm-hmm. and those adjustments had a cascade effect into the whole relationship. Kind of, that's the theme of the marriage book. He's going to make these simple adjustments. Anybody can do them. Simple doesn't mean easy, but they're still pretty straightforward, and they should have a cascade effect to bring about a whole lot of other positive changes. You don't have to be fancy in your communication. You don't have to use I messages and not you messages and. Go out on dates every Tuesday night. You have to do all that stuff. Make these few interpersonal changes and watch what happens.
0: So the key word is simple, right? So there are, there are things that, that are almost like cosmetic or minor adjustments around our lives that can have tremendous effects. Does that, does that read back to you as what you're saying?
2: Human psychology 101. <laughs> the simpler it is, the more likely we are to do it. And the more likely we are to do it, the better it's going
0: to work. So yeah. in this example that you gave of the six-year-old child um, needing, the parents needed to have a, a, a simple, maybe a few disciplinary changes, right? Uh, we're going to try these three or four things when, when you interact with your child as to as to forming him and, and his discipline. I feel like it's a very common problem right now that people, we all used to act a certain way. We follow the rules that our parents laid down for us and the rules that their parents laid down for them. And people are seem to be operating in, in their interpersonal relationships now in a sort of wild west attitude like they don't want to they they feel like all the old rules don't don't apply that we people are different now we have new new ways to raise children and new ways to be married and they they discarded these time-tested simple things like maybe like courtesy or simple discipline with children i mean i could i could think of a host of things that people don't do the way we used to do them do you think that that's at the root of, of 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 a lot of these issues when you
2: give god the boot kick him out of a culture and that's happening very rapidly dramatically rapidly faster than at any other time in recorded history anyway it usually take a lot longer to alter a whole culture not now technology alters a culture quickly you've got the boot all of a sudden you become your own ruler and you are you are ruled by self-interest and you're ruled by emotion so therefore if i have no one that i really look higher to to say Ray, You need to treat your spouse better, right? You need to be more complimenting. You, be, you need to be more forgiving. You need to shut your mouth when you most feel like saying something nasty. If I don't have somebody higher to look at, I'm much less likely to do
0: that. So we lose God, which is the this, this transcendent big order of, of what's good and what's true and what's beautiful that, that informs our ethic. And we think we can go along with the ethic, but then without God, our ethic just disappears, right? And so we're we're sort of a mess of chaos. And, and not knowing how to, to be at peace in ourselves and have peaceful relations.
2: Yes. I choose my satisfaction in the short term. If my wife says something that I don't want to hear, rather than trying to figure out, now one of my short steps is ask a question. I want to know why you think this way. And rather than do that, my first response is, I'm going to tell her how she's wrong. I'm going to tell her that she does that too. I'm going to tell her she's way off. I'm going to tell her, why are you always picking on me? I'm going to tell her, rather than saying, okay, when do I do that? In other words... I- I'll get people walking into my office, doctor, and the woman will say, he never sticks up with his mother for me. Never. Now, of course, bad to say never, but I don't argue with that. I turn to the guy, and I'll say, do you know why she thinks this? No. How long have you been married? 24 years. You don't know why? she thinks you don't stick up for her in front of her mother did you ever ask her so that's one of the things i say that you've got to kind of understand where this person is getting this idea at least you may think it's ridiculous you may think it is is totally immature and neurotic but at least if you can explain it the other person will feel understood and sometimes people want to be understood more than they want to be agreed with
0: yes i agree and women, especially, I think they they were always jabbering at our husbands and they're they're hearing five percent of what we say, which I understand. You know, they don't have a high tolerance for lots of words. But, uh, yeah, to be understood is is a huge, huge gift by, from from your spouse, especially, but also from your children and your friends and the, uh, all our other relationships.
2: Doctor, are you familiar with something in physics called the law of entropy? Yes. Everything decays, right? It Mm -hmm. all has to decay. Mm -hmm. There's something I mention in the book called the law of social entropy. That means a relationship can get naturally sloppy. When I was courting my wife, I used better manners. I was more complimentary towards her appearance or so- towards her attributes. I asked her about herself more. I was interested. I put more effort into it. As a relationship goes on, it doesn't have to become hostile to become sloppy. to get lazy. Law of social entropy. And I think that can take over a lot of marriages if you don't do some of these simple things again.
0: Tell me some examples of simple things. I have a
2: chapter called Don't Say It. If I were to gather up all the people that I've offended, that things that I regret, I put them in a stadium. Most of it would be because I was at peak emotional surge when I said it. I felt like I had to say it. I tell spouses, that surge doesn't last very long. Believe it or not, it doesn't. It's a physiological reality. When you most feel like firing something off, if you can just, for 20 seconds, not say what you most want to say you will have the ability to control it at least somewhat and you won't say the nastiness that was going to come out of you. The phrase is, you never have to apologize for what you didn't say.
0: That's the truth. Many
2: many marriages, the hostility comes from that emotional surge. And that emotional surge is something that dissipates relatively quickly, the the peak of it anyway. You may stew for several hours, but the peak of that emotional surge really does abate rather quickly. And if you could just shut your mouth... during that peak you will you will stop 50% of the nastiness that can enter that marriage
0: the world would be a much better place if if this was applied right across the board right if people kept quiet for a few seconds but dr ray in our modern culture i think something that tends against this this very good advice is that we have been conditioned to say to tell our truth right as if something is true i should be very frank and express my feelings and say exactly how i feel and i've heard um, in my own marriage, sometimes I've said to my husband, "Why did you say this?" He goes, "Cause it's true. This is the truth. And if it's t- truth, I can say it." And you know, we've had these discussions going back and forth, where I say, "Well, sometimes truths are too painful to hear, right? <laughs> Straight out loud. Um, sometimes truths have to be a- a- approached obliquely at a-, at a better time." How does this modern um, insistence on the truth fight against? A, a, a good marriage?
2: If you want to damage some of your relationship, make sure that you are totally transparent at all times.
0: <laughs> a, recipe, you know, honey, I, a
2: recipe for I disaster. There, <laughs> I think that uh, you you might not want to wear that dress. Uh, it just really doesn't make you look good. It makes you look fatter than you are. Now, <laughs> that may be true if you go and poll 100 people. 97 of them are going to agree with you. So what? It's a stupid thing to say. That's one. So total transparency is dumb. It's like the guy who says, Well, you know, honey, I just want you to know that sometimes I look at other women and I really think, Wow, they are way more attractive than you. I just wanted to tell you that in total truth and transparency. (laughs) You idiot, shut up. Okay? Conversely, if she says, Well, I have to tell you, sometimes I think that you are a major league jerk. When you think like that well, that's probably not a good truth to say either the other thing is feelings are not truth. I may feel a certain way and I may feel well therefore because I feel that it's the truth No, it isn't it's your feeling doesn't mean it's true be very careful when you claim that what you're saying is the truth Yes, there are certain moral truths gravity is a truth But many of my feelings are not truth. They are my feelings for that moment. And if I attach them to truth, you're done. You can't answer it because I've already established I have truth you don't.
0: There's also truths that can be couched in better terms, right? So, for instance, say you have someone in your family who repeatedly lies. Um, You can say about, say it's a mother-in-law. Your your mother's always lying. She's a liar. (laughs) That's a very different way of saying something like, you know, we have to be careful when we talk to your mother. Sometimes she doesn't quite come out and tell us you know what's actually happening right there's there's sure. there's soft ways to say things yeah you can say I'm not always sure
2: what to believe yeah that that's easy enough done now, now again it takes a little skill and we don't naturally think that way I lift weights I've lifted weights all my life when I first walked into that weight room the idea of bench pressing 300 pounds was similar to me basically running a 26 mile marathon that's not going to happen however over the course of three or four years, consistent lifting i bench 300 pounds well it's the same thing with these kind of simple skills you got practice them. for example another one of my steps is use your manners we really are insistent on five-year-olds saying please saying thank you saying excuse me we 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 hammer that home with five-year-olds. My experience has been, even in the best of marriages, we don't have the manners of a five-year-old. Hey, uh, honey, uh, uh, get me a cup of coffee. Well, Jeff, where's the please there? Where's the thank you for the coffee? Where is uh, that was a beautiful meal, and thanks. W- where is that? But we would expect a five-year-old to do it.
0: C.S. Lewis has an essay, and I can't remember the name right now, um, one of his shorter essays, um where he talks about how people say that they li- that to be at home is, is to, be, to be relaxed and to be free and to be comfortable. But he, he points out that a lot of the time what that means, or mainly what that means, is that we allow ourselves to be rude and discourteous to the people that matter the most to us, whose relationships we most value, and then we keep our courtesy and our, and our, uh, our beautiful manners for, for strangers, basically, or people at work. Is that something you see in your practice?
2: One of the questions I ask spouses, and this isn't just necessarily doctor in therapy, it's at any time. Would your spouse say that you treat them better than you treat anybody else? Would they say that? Or would they say, boy, I sure wish she was as nice to me as she is to those ladies at church. (laughs) Oh, I wish he talked to me like he talks to those girls at work. Exactly. When we are nicer to people that are not close to us, we're basically saying, I'm trying to impress you. I want you to think I'm a great person. When we get sloppy with those we love the most, or with those who do the most for us, we're basically saying, "Yeah, I can, I can relax here a little bit. I don't have to quite worry about it. You know, I care for you, so when I get scolding or I say a snotty remark, eh, okay, well, you know, it's just that's just part of the relationship. We're co- like a couple of old shoes. We're used to be each other. Would your spouse say? And I use this example, Doctor. I'll say, say a uh, a woman comes up to you, says, "I work with your husband." And I have to tell you, he is the sweetest, the kindest, the most positive person at work. The ladies love him because he never scolds. He's always uplifting. You must you must be so content to live with him. <laughs> now, if in fact, if in fact that's the way he is at home, she'd say, yeah, I, I got myself a gem. I really do. If not, if not, she's not going to say, well, you know, I'm glad he treats other people good. I mean, that's comforting. I like that thought. No, she, it's going to be like a knife in her because she's thinking, well, he doesn't
0: act that way here. I think that that's probably much more common than, than not, <laughs> from my experience um, with marriages. You know, your book, Dr. Ray, it doesn't have to be for people with, with problems, right? Like problem marriages. It's it's something that can help anybody in, 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 in a good marriage, in fact.
2: There's a role of therapy, doctor, and you probably know this. The people who are less disturbed get better quicker. So that in good marriages, they're more likely to benefit from these ideas. In severely problematic marriages... Uh, it's a, it's more of an uphill slog to benefit from some of these ideas. Although, although, as we said back in the beginning, sometimes simple things, I just got, I had a letter an email just yesterday from a woman. One of the steps in the book is make a list and it essentially says, how long has it been that you've really told your spouse what things you admire and like about them? I mean, a list, write them down and then take a time. Sometimes say, look, I... I want to tell you some things, and just please be quiet and let me say these things. And she said she had struggled with her husband. They had been married many, many years. She made this list out. He didn't want to hear it. He basically said, no, I don't need to hear it. She goes, I want to tell you. And she wrote down, she said, I couldn't believe how many positive things came to my mind when I thought about it. I was caught up in all my frustrations, and that was just dwarfing everything else. She said, I had 27 things on my list. He couldn't believe what I was saying. In some respects, he didn't even know she thought that. And I kind of said, well, why didn't you tell him before this list? And she said, what a change it made little
0: thing like that I can believe it I can believe it the person closest to you to know that they that they value you and they see you they see your virtues and the, and how hard you try even though you fail all the time but that you, you keep getting up in the morning and trying again that's a, a beautiful thing to acknowledge it has to fill you with warmth and and strength no for the for the next day's struggle Dr. Ray well, thank you
2: Well you're welcome I'm so glad to be with you. I, I just have to tell you, I, I did a variant of that with my wife. I wrote the list out of what I most admired by about me, and then I had her sign it. Oh,
0: <laughs> okay. I'm going to try that with my husband. <laughs> <laughs> It'll help him. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Ray, thank you very much. Tell, tell our listeners where they can buy your book, Simple Steps to a Stronger Marriage, and also... Where, when they can listen to your show on EWTN Radio.
2: It is on 1 o'clock Eastern Time every day. Also, they can get the book at uh, the uh, EWTN catalog. They can get it via press, or they can get it on my website. My website books are signed at drray.com, D-R-R-A-Y.com.
0: Well, I'm buying one right now. I think maybe three for me and my two married children. So thank you so much, Dr. Ray. You're you're a breath of fresh air and and so helpful to so many. We appreciate having you.
2: Thank you, Dr. Grisky. I'll talk to you
0: And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel.
3: This is Father Roger Lannery, and it's a privilege for me to be with you. So we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when Jesus will give us another parable about a vineyard, this time one leased out to tenants who, rather than paying their rent, beat and kill the servant sent to collect it, and even murder the owner's son when he comes to speak to them. What Jesus says has both a very important historical meaning as well as a crucial actual. For us to understand its present significance, though, we first need to grasp the historical lesson jesus was teaching his original listeners with the image of the vineyard jesus was summarizing god's relations with the jewish people as god himself said through the prophet isaiah in the sunday's first reading the vineyard of the lord of hosts is the house of israel and the people of judah are his pleasant planting the vineyard is ultimately all of god's people all of the children he created and we're meant to work and cultivate the vineyard he has put into our hands But God gave the house of Israel more than just stewardship over the great natural endowment of creation, like he had given to other nations. He also made Israel stewards of a greater gift, the covenant he had established with the human race. Through Isaiah, we see how much personal care God took in preparing the vineyard of Israel. Isaiah tells us he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. God himself, in other words, had done all of the hard work building the infrastructure of the vineyard, clearing it so that that it could produce fruit, putting a watchtower in it to guard for animals coming to eat the fruit, establishing a wine press so that the fruit could immediately produce joy. He gave the house of Israel the relatively light task of maintaining that vineyard and bearing fruit from that covenant. But what happened? God tells us through Isaiah that he expected it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes. It had the appearance of growth, the outward show of fruit, but the fruit was worth nothing. Fruit is always interpreted as acts of love, justice, goodness, and faith. That's not what God found. He discovered rather bloodshed. So the owner of the vineyard, God the Father, as Jesus tells us in the gospel parable, sent his servants, the prophets, to remind them of their need to produce good fruit from all God's gifts and to teach them by word and example how to do so. But the reaction was to beat and kill the messengers. So God the Father sent others more than the first, Jesus says, and they treated them the same way. This is precisely what happened to God's prophets, almost all of whom were killed. Jesus, in fact, would later lament over the holy city Jerusalem because it was the site of the execution of so many prophets. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he cried. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jesus tells us that after all of those unjust deaths, his father, the landowner, sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But rather than respond with gratitude to yet one more chance, they said to themselves, this is the year. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. And Jesus says, they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When Jesus said those words, he was telling them precisely what was occurring in their hearts at that very moment and prophesying what would happen within a fortnight. That sentiment, come, let us kill him, reverberated throughout Pontius Pilate's courtyard as they screeched, let him be crucified, let him be crucified. What was essentially going on within their hearts was that they didn't want to be stewards of the vineyard, but owners. They didn't want to have a god over them. They wanted to be gods themselves. Like power-hungry princes who kill any other claimants to the throne, they killed anyone who tried to teach them otherwise. The great English writer C.S. Lewis once said that the devil always tries to get us to think we're owners. He wants us to say like a whining baby on its most selfish days, "My." It's my life, my work, my money, my family, my future, my Sunday, mine, mine, mine. The first Sunday of October is Respect Life Sunday, when we pray and recommit ourselves to living and proclaiming the gospel of life. And we see how the devil has insinuated the lies C.S. Lewis describes in the hearts of all those who justify abortion, euthanasia, and other life-attacking practices. Pro-abortion leaders, for example, trumpet the diabolical idea, it's my body, it's my choice. But their child's body is not their body. Not even our body is our body. We're stewards, not owners. Once the devil, however, has gotten someone to start thinking he or she is an owner and not a steward, disastrous consequences follow, something we've seen happen more than 60 million times in our country since the legalization of abortion in 1973. You see, the same diabolical seduction at work among those people who are pushing for euthanasia under various euphemisms like physician-assisted suicide or medical assistance in dying. People say, it's my life. I'll determine when it ends. But it's not their life. Once again, we're stewards, not owners. It's no surprise that once people start to think that we rather than God are the Lord of the living and the dead, that other atrocities ensue like involuntary euthanasia, which is nothing short of murder. In the Netherlands, for example, doctors have started to determine when life is worth living and have been taking upon themselves the decision whether to try to help the patient get better, which is their duty, or try to put the patient to sleep like an animal. Many senior citizens who are sick don't want to go to the hospital in the Netherlands. Because they fear their doctors will kill them without their permission. Similar fears have arisen in Canada, in states where euthanasia has been legalized. And in other countries where people respond to obvious cries for help, not by addressing the pain, but eliminating the patient. Jesus tells his Jewish listeners at the end of today's parable that the vineyard, the kingdom of God, will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. That's what Jesus did when he founded the church. He passed along the stewardship of creation, especially God's covenant with the human race, to the church Jesus founded, which began with faithful Jews who heeded the vineyard's owner's servants and especially his son. Like with the vineyard of the house of Israel, however, God is calling Christians to bear fruit in acts of self-giving love, justice, generosity, and faith. He wants us to bear the fruit of the kingdom. God wants us to ask ourselves, what type of fruit have we been bearing from the gift of our life, from the gift of grace, from the gift of the covenant, and all the blessings with which God has endowed us? Have we been making a difference, for example, in advancing a culture of life? Have we saved a life yet? by helping a pregnant woman choose life, or by adopting a child, or by compassionately caring for an elderly loved one, so that he or she may not be tempted toward suicide, but help to entrust himself or herself to the Lord and bear the fruit of love in the midst of suffering. As the Synod on Synodality for a Synodal Church meets in the Vatican during the month of October, let us pray that it will renew the Church in communion, participation, and mission. There are elements of the Church, like we've seen in Germany, the Netherlands, and Switzerland, who have been trying to use the synodal structures to produce wild grapes rather than the fruit of faith. Instead of accepting scripture and tradition as faithful stewards, some want to believe that they're owners of the deposit of faith and have the right to change it to support whatever they think the church should advance, like making the church a democracy, treating sexual sins as quasi-sacraments that deserve the church's blessing, or trying to reject Jesus in the church's practice of the sacrament of holy orders, the gift of priestly celibacy, and more. We pray hard that the synod, which means the journey together of the church, will strengthen us all with gratitude to follow faithfully in Christ's footsteps. So we mentioned the gift of holy orders by which the church, by which Christ continues to serve and guide us through priests and deacons. I'd like to ask you to pray with me in gratitude. Twenty-five years ago this Sunday, with 30 classmates from the North American College, I was ordained a transitional deacon by Cardinal Edmund Shoka at St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. There's great meaning to the fact that every bishop and every priest is first a deacon, ordained to imitate Christ the deacon, the Greek word for servant, who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. Like St. Stephen the deacon, St. Lawrence the deacon, St. Francis of Assisi the deacon, Deacons are meant to help the whole church bear fruit and charity. I ask you to pray for my classmates and me that now, as priests, we will produce fruit that lasts into eternity and help guide the church in the journey following Christ's footsteps faithfully to eternity. In summarizing all of salvation history, it's no surprise that Jesus did so in the form of the image of a vineyard. He knew from all eternity that one day he would take the fruit of the vine and turn it into his own blood, the price of our salvation in the raw material for the eucharist jesus showed how we wanted to incorporate our efforts he told us to use not grains and grapes but bread and wine which not only are the fruit of the earth and of the vine but the work of human hands it's to mass that we bring our own patient hard work and where god the vineyard owner prunes us in the vineyard that's the world the father is the vine grower jesus is the vine and we are the branches if we remain in him and he in us then we will bear fruit and acts of love that will last forever so we pray to receive him this sunday We thank the Father for sending us His Son, confident that we will not only respect Him, but love and embrace Him, in the blessed fruit of every womb and every vulnerable person, and with Him, produce a harvest of life that will know no end. God bless you.
0: Thank you, Father. To learn more about Father Landry, check out his website. It's called catholicpreaching.com, and make sure to catch his writings at EWTN's National Catholic Register, where he's a regular contributor. A big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that our conversations have consequences and that those consequences are fabulous for you. Go with our prayers.